My name is Sarah Sawfeld, and this is My Life Wildlife. I am a shorebird biologist or wildlife biologist and also do a lot of data analysis and data management. So I grew up in northern Kentucky and I was always interested in nature since I was a little kid. My mom jokes around and says that when I was about two, I told her I wanted to be a worm scientist because one of my favorite things was collecting worms. Then, I guess it was probably in seventh grade, I decided to do a science fair project on the birds in my backyard and what birds were coming into the bird feeders. And as a part of that project, my mom, who was a third grade science teacher, so there always was a learning component to everything we did, she took me on a bird watching field trip in one of the local parks. And since then, her and I both became interested in birds. And we would both go out on field trips together every weekend, and we learned our birds together. In college was probably my first experience with doing research, and I went to a small liberal arts school in Kentucky, and so there weren't a whole lot of research opportunities, but I was fortunate enough to be able to work on the Ohio River studying fish, and so all pretty much for three summers I spent on the river catching fish, doing electrofishing, setting out nets and I fell in love with it and also met my husband there who is also a wildlife biologist. So it uh, was a great experience to introduce me into research and actually be a career that I could go into, which was something that was pretty, pretty cool to, to realize. Well, my husband is also a wildlife biologist. So as we both finished up our PhDs, we were looking for jobs and there was an advertisement for a postdoc position for a shorebird biologist in here in Alaska. And we had made a vacation here just the past year. And we both, when we came, we're like, oh, it's so, you know, beautiful up here and there's so much wildlife, but I don't know if we would spend, you know, we would live there forever. It was kind of what we came away from it. And so this position came up and we talked about it and we said, yeah, let's just go up there for a year or two until we can find a permanent job. It would be a great place. So 10 years later, we're still here, absolutely love it. For two people who love wildlife and love being outdoors, there's not a better place. I think one of the first impressions that I had was laying in the bedroom and I woke up in the middle of the night and I looked outside and there was the aurora right over our house. And it was one of those experiences that you don't have many other places in the world. You know, I would call my family, there's a moose outside. And, you know, that was something. Now it's like, oh, yeah, there's another moose outside. But uh, when you first come here, it's, it's pretty amazing when you're just driving down the road and there's a moose crosses, you know, in front of you on the road. So what we're trying to do is to, since we have such a long-term data set, look at how climate change is impacting these species and what are the predictions for the future of how these species might be adaptable or not adaptable to the changes that we're, we're seeing. With climate change, you know, these birds are relying on the insects that are emerging from the tundra, especially as the chicks hatch. It's very important for the chicks to find food right away. And so they try to time their hatch with the peak emergence of these invertebrates. So you'll see a big peak of when all the invertebrates are emerging and then they become food for these individuals. And so now with climate change, the invertebrates are hatching earlier and earlier because it's getting warmer sooner and sooner, yet the chicks are still hatching at the same time because the birds are timing their migration based on photo period, which is not changing with climate change. So the birds are still arriving at the same time, laying their eggs and their chicks are hatching, 
But now instead of finding an abundance of food like they used to, the food has already hatched and the peak of invertebrates is way in front of now when the shorebirds are hatching. So we collect information on chick growth rates, chick survival, to try to address some of these questions and see how adaptable the species are. Is there still enough food even though they're after the peak? Can they still survive or are they going to be in trouble with, with future climate changes? We have a long-term site in Utiavik, which is one of the most farthest north places you can go. Each year we send you know, seven or eight volunteers as well as graduate students who collect the data for the whole summer. And so they spend their summers walking around the tundra looking for nests. And once the nests are found, they can then capture the birds on the nest using some traps that you place on the nest of the bird that you can pull and it flips over and catches the adult as they come back to incubate. So by banding as many adults and by tracking the nests and looking at survival, we can have a pretty good database of information that we can compare throughout the years. But there is some adaptability. Um, some of the birds are able to change when their migration timing a little bit, but not as fast as the snowmelt is changing. The density of shorebirds in Barrow is, is just amazing. And we put a blue flag near each nest so we can go back and find them. And by the end of the summer, it just looks like a sea of blue flags out there because there's so many nests and so many shorebirds that it's a very highly productive area for the species. We have to be very careful not to make tracks to where the predators can follow us to the nests and, uh, and then find them because they're pretty smart. <laughs> One of my favorite memories of being there was I just visited a nest to check its status and it was still active. All the eggs were there and I was just backing off and I turned around and an arctic fox was following me and so I sat there and watched it and it went right up to the nest that I was just at. Luckily it didn't find the nest but it was probably I don't know 10 yards from me and just looked at me and I looked at it and then it ran off across the tundra. Another project that we've been working on is putting on transmitters on birds where we can track their movements. And these technology now have gotten small enough that we can put them on some of the smaller birds, which is the first time these birds are being tracked throughout their migration. And so some of the species we've tracked um, have included red phalarope. And red phalarope are a very unique shorebird in that they only spend a very short period of their time on land and the other time they're out to sea. So these birds will come to Alaska to breed and raise their young, and then they head back out into the ocean. And so they're kind of a seabird for part of their life, even though they are a shorebird. So we've tracked them going from Alaska through the Bering Strait and south off the coast of California. We've also tracked species such as American golden plovers, which are more of a grassland species. So that species is very interesting in that during fall migration, they'll take off and they will migrate over the Atlantic Ocean as they make their way to South America. But on their return visit, they go up north through the grasslands of the lower 48 in the continental United States. This past couple falls, we've had several large hurricanes come through at the same time the birds were trying to jump over the Atlantic Ocean and make their way to South America. And some birds started that journey and said, nope, not going that way. And they turned, went straight inland and then made their way down through the grassland area of 
the continental United States, which was something pretty unique that they can be sort of adaptable to those those big, large weather systems that might interrupt their, their path because I can't imagine migrating through a hurricane. So I don't think they wanted to either. <laughs> when I first started bird watching, shorebirds were probably my least favorite group of birds. Where we lived, it was often during the non-breeding time, so they all looked alike. You couldn't tell them apart. Yeah, it wasn't my favorite group. But then as I worked on snowy plovers and I've learned more, they're, I've come to realize how diverse they are and how amazing that their life history is, where they can migrate distances almost to the moon and back halfway in their lifetime. They, uh, especially the chicks, look like little cotton balls on stilts. They're just really fluffy and um, they're pretty adorable. But, you know, on top of that, they are pretty adaptable to these very inhospitable, harsh environments, which make them a pretty amazing bird. I studied them in, you know, in these salt lakes in Texas where it gets so hot in the summer. You know, a lot of people that would come to help me would be, you know, sunburned and dehydrated after the first week where, you know, these birds just sit out on the nest all day long. They have to fly to water sources, bring back water in their feathers to cool their chicks and their eggs. And it's also a saline environment, so they can't necessarily drink the saline water. They have to find freshwater springs for them to be able to use. Unfortunately, a lot of shorebirds are declining and shorebird populations have shrunk on average 70% across North America since the 70s, with those breeding in the Arctic being some of the ones that are showing the largest population declines. So a lot of the species here in Alaska, they migrate all over the world. They migrate through the East Asian, Australasian flyway down towards like China. Some of them migrate through North America and winter in South America and some migrate along the east coast. So here in Alaska, we have this situation where we have shorebirds coming from all over the world, and they're all converging on the breeding grounds to breed and raise their young. And what's exciting and also makes shorebird research very difficult is that they migrate and they're not stuck to geopolitical borders. They're traversing these wide expanses. So it creates a situation where international collaboration is needed. And in order to increase their populations and conserve them on the ground, we have to conserve them not only here in Alaska, but also throughout their entire range during migration, during wintering. And that's a huge endeavor to undertake for sure. You know, I hope to inspire other people whether it be other young girls who are interested in wildlife or, you know, all children really, to understand their local community of wildlife. You know, a lot of people like to look to Alaska because it's exciting and there's, you know, big animals like bears and moose and it's not what you see in other places. But, you know, just getting out in your local community and looking at your local avifauna, whether it be shorebirds or the songbirds, I think is so important and just getting out in nature and appreciating it. And when you do that, then hopefully you'll love it and then want to help and conserve it. So I think, you know, hopefully other people will look to see what, you know, we do as scientists, but also realize that you don't have to be a wildlife biologist to help conserve species, that everybody can do their own little part in their own part of the world. And that will hopefully make a big difference in the long run because Shorebird conservation isn't just me or the people I work with. It's a 
whole community of people without which we wouldn't be able to conserve shorebirds. As I said, they're these species that travel such long distances that, you know, we can't just conserve them here in Alaska. We have to conserve them in the lower 48. We have to conserve them in South America and in Asia, Australia, pretty much Africa. They're in almost all the regions of the world are shorebirds. And so everybody has their own responsibility to conserve what they have in their own little part. This has been My Life Wildlife, a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. Producers, Lisa Hupp and Chris Pacheco. Produced and story edited by David Hoffman for Citizen Race Car, audio editing, sound design, and original music by Garrett Tiedemann. Artwork by Michelle Lawson. In Alaska, the employees of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service are shared stewards of world-renowned natural resources and our nation's last true wild places. The lands and waters of this place we call home nourish a vast and unique array of fish, wildlife, and people. Our hope is that each generation has the opportunity to live with, live from, discover, and enjoy the wildness of this awe-inspiring land and the people who love and depend on it.